Dr. Dale on Quail, bringing you the latest news and views about all things quail in Texas. Brought to you by the Rolling Plains Quail Research Foundation, preserving the wild quail hunting heritage of Texas for this and future generations. Major support for this podcast comes from Gordian Sons Outfitters. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to this month's episode of Dr. Dale on Quail. I'm Gary Joyner with the Texas Farm Bureau. Native warm season grasses are important, and reseeding native grasses is a popular topic among landowners looking to improve habitat for quail and other wildlife species. Dr. Dale's guest today is a longtime friend and resource for landowners who can help with recommendations. He's Brian Hayes of Bammert Seed Company. Let's go to Dr. Dale now with his special guest to learn more. Good morning, Gary. It's great to be with you all again this morning uh, for the June podcast on Dr. Dale on quail. And boy, was May good to many of us. We've had some really blessed rains during the month of May. And so hopefully uh, that will continue because we all know the importance of good soil moisture for quail and for what our subject's going to be today, which is going to be talking about reseeding native grasses and we'll get to that in just a second i want to turn back the clock with you though to when i was 12 years old up there in hollis oklahoma summer of 1967 that was my first summer job and my first summer job was working for a guy named harold dennis a local rancher there who had grubbed a lot of mesquite and i was uh tasked with broadcasting uh, side oats grandma into those holes that were left from grubbing the mesquite so me and my trusty little horse dinky we spent most of the summer just riding around being a johnny Appleseed, if you will and tossing out a handful of side oats crumb and moving to the next one that seemed like a long hot summer to me but if you think back to rock and roll and maybe to a movie forrest gump you know the summer of 67 was also called the summer of love i didn't particularly love what i was doing although that was my introduction to range management but the summer of love had a lot to do with grass. Now they were talking about some other grass um, that I wasn't aware of and uh, never used, but uh, marijuana, of course. And but today our summer of love and grass is going to be talking about the new grasses that I have learned to love over my career, and that's the native warm season grasses. And so to uh, help us with that today is an old colleague and friend of mine, Brian Hayes. Brian and I worked together with Texas A&M AgriLife Extension Service for a number of years. So good morning, Brian. Good morning, Dale. Good to be with you today. It's great to have you. And why don't you start off by giving us your elevator talk? What's your background? Where'd you, where are you at and how'd you get there? Yes, sir. Well, I, I was grew up in Brownwood, Texas. I went to Texas A&M and uh, got my undergraduate degree in rangeland ecology and management. And then uh, several years later, about 10 years later, I did get my master's in rangeland ecology and management as well. Um, after graduation, I worked for several years in for Texas AgriLife Research, working on with a lot of graduate students that were doing some range research in Texas and in, in several other states as well. Uh, then I spent a little time with the Texas Railroad Commission as an agronomist in their in their surface mining and reclamation division. And then I had the opportunity to go back to College Station, and that's when I started with uh, Texas AgriLife Extension in the range department. I did that for three or four years and then switched over and joined y'all in the wildlife department, where, where I spent a lot of time trying to, to uh, not eradicate, but to control Bermuda grass and plant it back to native grasses down in Austin, Washington, and Fayette and Lee counties. 
uh, working with parks and wildlife biologists and the county extension agents there and the producers that were wanting to go back uh, to some native grasses and in hopes of getting more quail in the area. And uh, then, then I had the opportunity to switch from wildlife department over to the Natural Resource Institute. Did that for several years, ended up having about 22 years with extension. And then several years ago, I had the opportunity to be a range consultant with Noble Research Institute. And I was that for, I guess, a little over two years. And then uh, had the opportunity arose to come to work with Bamert Seed Company. And I've been with Bamert now for about two years. Well, outstanding, and uh, please say hello to your lovely wife, Amy, who was also my colleague for many, many years, and as sharp a young lady as you'd ever find, and, and high energy, so it, it's it's always good to be able to uh, have a guest with me that I know a little bit about the background, and uh, no one is uh, better qualified to talk about our subject today on grasses and quail and reestablishing grasslands and uh, our our guest today, Brian Hayes. So, Brian, we are indeed glad to have you. Let's start. Well, first of all, I need to shout out uh, you, Bammert Seed Company up in Muleshoe. Uh, shout out to Nick Bammert. Uh, I guess he's the president CEO. Bammert's been around a pretty good long while. And uh, I met Nick in uh, 2009 when he joined the Quail Masters. And it was one of our Quail Masters alumni and had a good time getting to know him better. So, shout out to him and all the good for good folks up at Bamford, up there at Muleshoe, Texas, and I hope they've been getting some good rains up there, and I think they have. So, uh, and also, I want to just acknowledge, uh, thank Bamford Seed Company for donating the buffalo grass seed. We just opened our new headquarters there at the Rolling Plains Quail Research Ranch there between Roby and Snyder uh, about two months ago, and we've got, uh, are going to have a, a buffalo grass lawn there and appreciate Bammer seed for donating that seed for that we and with the good rains we've got we're off to a good start with getting a good stand of that so looking forward to that okay brian let's move in uh, in in the quail world and especially if you follow the national quail scene when i say that the uh, uh, northern bobwhite conservation initiative and some of those national efforts when you get into missouri and kansas and uh, on up to Kentucky and through there, they talk a lot about native warm season grasses or just the acronym NWSGs. So uh, what, Brian, kind of summarize for our audience, what are we talking about when we say native warm season grasses? Well, it, you're, of course, it's going to be a native grass. It's native and it's a grass that, that, is, that was there historically. Um, and, it, and it grows primarily or it grows late spring through the summer. So it's a warm during the warm season is when it's putting on it, putting on its growth and, and doing its thing. So as opposed to an introduced grass that that was not here historically, that may have been brought in from another continent. And we know, uh, or if if you visited with any of our colleagues down in South Texas, one of their uh, eminent concerns is the impact of the exotic grasses buffalo grass, uh, guinea grass, and some of those various grasses down in that part of the world. And of course, uh, probably the most pervasive exotic grass in Texas and with impacts on quail is Bermuda grass. And we'll talk more about uh, how to modify that for the benefit of quail here in just a second. But as we think about what some of those native warm season grasses are, give us some species names that we've heard of. Well, I'll start with the state grass of Texas, uh, side oats grama, uh, yellow Indian grass, state grass, Oklahoma, uh, little blue stem, Big blue stem, um, white tridents. There's a, there's hundreds of species of native grasses. Those are kind of the big ones. And uh, big blue stem, switchgrass. 
those are the ones that a lot of people have heard or, or may have heard, particularly if heard if they're in the wildlife community and range community. And Brian, kind of give us an idea of why over the last, I'd say over the last 15 years, there's been a lot more emphasis put on grasses and native warm season grasses. What's, what's pushing that? What's the motivation? I think there's several, Dale, and one can be attributed to you and, and others like you, the wildlife biologists that are maybe not just quail, but other grassland birds. We've seen those decline over time, over over the last few years as, as that conversion was made from native warm season grasses to whether it was agricultural production or to introduce monocultures. So, I th and I think part of the reason driving that, I think, is the education component and in the 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 with the work you've done and others have done to get that word out of why native warm season grasses are important. Um, you also, I think you see some changing land ownerships in Texas and Oklahoma, where you have some folks that are new to the land that are, that are buying places and, and they want to, they want to have native, they, they appreciate it and they're interested in, may have a more interest in wildlife. Although native warm season grasses are very good for if you're in cattle production and livestock production as well. So I think that I think the education about wildlife and declining grassland bird species. So I think the programs at Parks and Wildlife and Extension and some of the joint ventures and, and other organizations have been promoting grass native grassland has really been kind of a driver behind that over the last 10 to 15 years. And uh, the name Jenny Sanders just popped into my head when you were talking about that. Another friend and colleague of ours yes, for sir. many years. And Jenny did her master's thesis there at Texas A&M. And, and basically, she was studying the motivations of three different groups of landowners. And as I recall, uh, she called them the born to the land, the reborn to the land, and ag business, those three categories. And the born to the land are those historic, I mean, those are those 80 year old plus ranchers that uh, have been out there for a long time, uh, often usually good stewards because they, they recognize that the grass was a true resource. And then the reborn to the land are those people that uh, probably moved off to the city, made their made their livings and uh, then wanted to return to their roots and no pun intended. And so they purchased a lot of rural property in Texas, went back to the family ranch and so forth. And I think that's probably where maybe the greatest impetus has come from is that segment of landowners that we would call reborn to the land. And they're interested in everything from Dick Sissels to Bob Whites to Black Baldies and, and, and hopefully uh, trying to make, make those native rangelands the productive ecosystem that they historically were. So yes, welcome, welcome aboard all of y'all, regardless what your motivation is. But uh, Brian, let's talk about, again, you talk, there's a lot of different species of grass that one might select if he was planning on uh, reseeding native grasses. Let's talk about some of the uh, considerations or what some of those uh, factors would be. So let's talk about the landowner's goals. And I'm going to, I'm going to kind of, say either grazing, wildlife, or grazing and wildlife. So give me some broad recommendations there based on those three landowner goals. Okay, so in my opinion, if, you, if wildlife is your concern, um, a good a good, uh, good, diverse plant community or, or, or a good diverse blend, if you will. So you might have grasses and forbs that would be provide food, loafing cover, nesting habitat for grassland birds or fawning cover for deer, whatever your wildlife species that you were managing for, we would develop a blend uh, based off your, your goals if it is wildlife. And then along those same lines, those depending on what all's in that blend, that could easily be 
uh, grazed by livestock as well. And particularly, uh, as you know, Dale, a lot of the good wildlife managers and range managers, they're using their livestock as a tool to manage that habitat for their wildlife. So we would build a, a blend that, that would be good for cattle production or if they're in sheep or goats, we might tweak it a little bit there. And um, I'm just, yeah, and then if, if it was just a straight, if you were really just going for grazing, uh, might just tend to be, if it was a cattle, might be more heavy grass component and not as many forbs in that blend if and you, cattle production was your goal. And you touched on that phrase, species diversity. And again, in the wildlife community, we're always hip on the idea of species diversity, native plants, again, uh, more species of plants equal more species of insects, equal more species of critters that eat insects, including our bob white quail. What about the soil texture, uh, Brian? How does that factor into your recommendations? And, and you know, let's I'm, there's an almost an infinite number of soil textures, but let's just narrow that down to maybe two major soil types, and that may be being a uh, let's say a, a clay loam versus a uh, no, I don't know, a loamy sand or a fine sandy loam. Right. And the, and, and and that's usually what we'll do, Delta, if a producer or, or a customer that's called in to me now is, you know, find out where they are. I'm, I'm just going to expand on what you asked a little bit, if that's okay, is typically, uh, you know, what, what type of soils you have. And if, if they don't know, we can look that up with some of the tools that are available and then build a blend for them based off of the varieties and the species that are available, commercially available that would work for that soil type. And those can vary uh, across the state. Um, and, and, it, and it plays a role in what species we select or recommend that they plant in those areas. Okay. Uh, and if you're not familiar, if we're throwing some jargon out like fine sandy loams and that kind of thing, uh, those are important things. Uh, you may or may not be well-versed in uh, soil taxonomy or any of those things, but you've got a lot of help locally at your NRCS office, your uh, local county extension agent. Uh, you can go to the web soil survey, which is a very comprehensive uh, desktop tool that will help you in a lot of different ways. And I encourage you to check that out. Uh, so the, there's a lot of tools out there. Um, also, I guess the precipitation zone, Brian, I mean, you know, typically there, and, and I, I guess, let me say, if we're going to, try to focus on somewhere to area, somewhere today. Uh, let's let's stay in Fisher County at the Rolling Plains Quail Research Ranch, and we're mostly a fine sandy loam kind of a soil, and we're in a 20-inch precipitation zone. But I know that uh, in, in your daily business, you're talking to people that probably range from maybe 10 or 12 inches on the dry side to up to 50 plus maybe in some areas. So just how important is fitting that species that grass selection to your rainfall precipitation zone that that along with the soils is you've got to take that into consideration because some plants are going to do better in the the western part of the state or, or western states as opposed to some of those that can handle more do well and are more productive in in a wetter environment and so we definitely take that into consideration when we're when we're building a blend for someone um, not only the soils, but the precipitation they're in, and again, what their goals are for the property. And we're all, again, pleased with what May did for us, or most of us, I'm assuming, uh, because um, I know there at the research ranch, we went from about 
two inches going into May to nearly nine coming out of May. So uh, May was good to us. And I've heard good reports from a lot of the rolling plains and, and much of West Texas. Uh, Brian, again, this is Dr. Dale on quail. And again, I appreciate that there's a lot of motivations out there for wanting to plant native grass grasses, but we're going to focus in and, and talk as, as much as we can about targeting those four Bible white quail. And so as we do that, our primary considerations or if we talk about things like little blue stem well our primary considerations are nesting cover little blue stem most of the other grasses that have what i call fluffy seeds or chaffy seeds we don't think of those as food production they're just not providing much in terms of seed so in order to provide a be a grass that helps bob whites out food wise it needs to have a slick hard seed and there's not too many of them out there, but uh, there's two genera, two genus that uh, do fulfill that with Paspalums and the Panicums. And I guess Soteria, uh, that's that's the Plains Bristlegrass. So uh, I guess comment on those thoughts that I just threw out there to you, Brian, if you don't mind. Yes, sir. No, I think you're exactly right. The those those would be the ones that popped to my mind, Dale, the Paspalum, the Panicums, so, and, and, and the... Uh, Plains bristlegrass would be those that would fit that. Um, and again, back to your earlier question, and if, if that was your goal and you were planning, and, and we we would probably include those species if quail and grassland birds uh, were part of your goal, and then include some of the forbs in there as well that would provide that seed food source for those birds. Um, but I think though you're exactly right. Those are the three that popped top popped to my mind that would be available, commercially available, uh, that we could include in a blend, particularly for uh, grassland birds. And if we're talking in Greek to you out there today and you say, I don't savvy panicum paspalum, again, I'm always harping on you to increase your vocabulary of plants. And uh, there are tools and there are field guides. Uh, we just had a plant appreciation day back in May at the research ranch, had 110 people there. And we uh, scavenged the ranch, if you will, and located 171 species of plants that day. So anytime this this is a homework assignment for you anytime you can spend a day in the field with a good botanist and brian and i have been fortunate to hang with some of the best but anytime you can spend the day with with one of those individuals it'll be a day well spent and and i encourage you to learn a plant per week just a plant per week and if you know 50 species at the end of the year you'll be in the top one percent of the people you run with so that's your homework assignment but back to us our situation today Brian, I'm going to say that uh, basically we're going to be talking about two scenarios. One is going to be somebody that has existing turf, probably Bermuda grass, or somebody's got cultivated ground and it's it's been in wheat or it's been in cotton and they're going to retire that. And uh, their wildlife interest has said we're going to plant native grasses. So those will be the two basic uh, seed beds that we'd be talking about today. And I want to talk primarily about uh, the cultivated ground, the the, the good plowed ground that we're going to be planting something to. So we talked about some of those species a while ago, the big little blue stem, side oats, and some of those. Uh, but we talked about plains bristlegrass. Uh, talk to me about, again, just who to go to, where to go to, what decision aids are out there. If, if I come to you and say, okay, I've got 80 acres in Fisher County, and I want to plant it to warm season grass to benefit my Bob Whites, where would I go to? 
you've got several op options there, Dale. You, I'd, and if you'd call me and ask that, I would ask if you'd talk to your local NRCS, which is the USDA Natural Resource Conservation Service. They have an office in, in all the counties, I believe, and they usually have some good resource people there that could help you develop a blend based on your soil type and your where your property is located. Uh, you could also go to your AgriLife Extension Agent, your Parks and Wildlife Biologist. Those would be three that I would I would recommend highly that I that I think are all good agencies and are there and that's what that's what they're there for is to help producers uh, be successful. Uh, if you called me and you hadn't you had not been to any of those folks, you've got a couple of decision tools you, available. You mentioned earlier Web Soil Survey. Um, you could walk a producer through that over the phone, how to use it, or if you're familiar with it, it's pretty easy to use and very helpful with a lot of information on soils. And and if the ecological site descriptions have been done for that area, uh, it'll give you an idea of what plants were historically there, what were present. And then to take that a step further, uh, Bamert Seed Company has funded the development of a new tool that is called SeedSpec. And if you go to seedspec.com, uh, you can free sign up. You have to create a user name and a password, but you can do that and you can zoom in on your property and trace off your area of interest. Say it was an 80 acre field. It uses the information that's available through Web Soil Survey. And then on, on a step further, it'll take that. It, when you go to your area of interest that you've selected, it'll go through, pull all of that information that's available from USDA and the soils and the ecological sites, and then it'll pop up a screen and say, here's the here's the commercially available seed species or species that are available and that will work in your area. And it'll let you build a custom blend that you know will work uh, and is available from from any from many of your seed sources, uh, seed seed companies out there, and you can download that report and it'll email it to you. It'll have your soils report. It'll have the blend that you made, and then you can take that to your local seed store, feed wherever you buy native grass seed, and say I'd like this blend, if at all possible. Knowing that that should be that would pick pick the varieties that work for your area, and um, fit the soil and the ecological site that you're wanting to plant. Give us that website again, Brian. Yes, sir. It's seed, S-E-E-D-S-P-E-C dot com, seedspec.com. Seedspec.com. Okay. Yes, I'll, have to, I'll have to check that one out because most of what uh, I'm recalling today is is based on my 40 years of uh, experience, but it, uh, I started out my profession as an extension range management specialist for Oklahoma State University. And so most of what I've learned about planting grasses came from from uh, that tour of duty up there. And shout out to all the folks up there. Uh, I noticed on y'all's website, Brian, you've got a good website there, bamardseed.com, uh, Texas Native Seeds. That's a particular organization too, is it not? Yes, and so that's with uh, Texas A&M Kingsville, where they've they're doing local selections for different varieties, uh, or to develop varieties that'll work um, where we may not have those species commercially available at this time, if that makes sense. So they're so say something like South Texas uh, little uh, South Texas side oats grama, or um, Santiago silver blue stem. Those are some of the varieties that they've developed. A very good program fill in a niche where we have some some areas in the state where there's not there may not be something that's going to do exactly do as well as we would want it to 
that is commercially available at this time. So they're doing a good job filling that niche and coming up with some new varieties that, that will work and fill in the gaps where we, we don't have seed that'll do as well there commercially available at this time. I guess then running a kind of a parallel track to what the uh, plant material centers did for many years for NRCS, would that be fair to say? I think so. I think that's very similar to that. And they work with the plant material centers as well and um, to develop some of those new varieties or select, excuse me, select some of those new varieties. And I can't tell you where all the plant material centers are, but I know there's one at Knox City. I've uh, been to one at Manhattan Canyon. I'm sure they're scattered around. You could look that up through the NRCS if you're interested in that. Brian, I'm going to throw out some jargon that I often read about or hear about and probably cause confusion to those that aren't well-versed in some of these terms. And I'd like for you to just define them or say that those are synonymous or whatever. I'm going to throw out three. Ecotypes, varieties, and cultivars. Are those all the same thing or are there some differences there? Uh, there's some differences and, 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 and I get myself confused on these too, Dale, but I'll, I'll do my best and you correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, but a variety would be something, and I'm going to throw out like the buffalo grass, I believe you, you planted there at the, at the headquarters is Texoka variety. So that's really a Texas, Oklahoma, Kansas. It was selected based on, it would do well across ecotypes different ecotypes and different ecological sites in the southern Great Plains. So those are selections uh, that were done and come out of the plant material center you mentioned earlier. Um, cultivar to me, uh, you know, it, in the name cult cultivated, it's, it's, it's more a human propagated, I would say. Um, and then if you got to take that a further to a hybrid, which is basically a cross of two cultivars. And then again, ecotype would be uh, and you see these some, like it might be the, the Pennsylvania, Pennsylvania ecotype switchgrass. So it, it grows in, a, in an area that's been native collected or a native harvest in an area that's, that's going to work just in that ecotype. You, you, you take that ecotype from Pennsylvania and plant it down in Fisher County, it's probably not going to do very well just because of rainfall, soil, slope, any of those different geological uh, and uh, weather so I, I, I sense what you're hinting at there is you always want to you always want to try to select a seed that is locally adapted, and we're going to talk more here in a few minutes about exactly what some of those criteria are. Let's move uh, into now that we've basically said okay, we want to have a, a warm season mix of uh, that includes things like little blue stem for nesting cover, some switchgrass, some. Um, some plains bristle grass, uh, some maximilian sunflower, some of the perennial forbs, and so forth. Now then, okay, so I'm I'm looking at the website. I've got my my seed mix like I think I want it. Now it's ready to plant. So I'm going to ask you some agronomic questions. When's the best time to plant? I, that's a good question. A, a lot of folks plant in the spring. Uh, up until June of this year, you know, we've been a little cooler even into the even into June this year. I think you'd be okay and you've got some timely rains, you've got some good, good soil moisture. There are some folks that will plant in the fall um, and they let that seed sit there over over the winter. And then once the soil, most of our native warm season grasses and forbs, they are going to germinate, Dale, when you get your soil temperature up in the mid 60s and it stays there. So you're getting in, you know, into May in, into the month of May before we're getting there most years. Um, so it, it's, it, it, it just depends on, on what you feel most comfortable with. I think 
spring or fall is the best time. I don't think I would um, recommend going in in July and trying to plant. Uh, I just think you set yourself up for failure there. You know, so you you might have some soil moisture and you might get it germinated, but if it turns off and doesn't rain again till the fall, those seedlings that that do emerge and germinate uh, probably aren't going to survive. And the conventional wisdom is always plant just before a two-inch rain. So again, you're trying to figure out when that uh, when you can maximize that potential. And and generally, April and, and May are our uh, April, May, early June are our wettest months here in the Rolling Plains. And you know, the climatologists have told us that we were headed into an El Nino. Bless their hearts. <laughs> uh, we've been mired in La Nina for the last three years or so, and given the last month or so I, I think they've convinced many of us that they may know what they were talking about brian because again may's been a really good month for us so would, would you again there's a we're going to get more into the cost of this in a minute but it's an expensive proposition to plant native grasses so would you ever play the odds a little bit to say well the meteorologists say we've got the la nina and this is hypothetical now we've got a la nina coming in here for the next year would, would you avoid that until wait until that you know, a year or two down the road when hopefully that El Nino system is forecasted or you just go with April, May regardless? Me personally, I, I like to say for last year, last year was so dry, you know, and we and I would talk with some folks that were calling, what can I plant? And I would I would recommend then. I mean, you if you want to spend the money, you can try it. Um, I'm a little more tight than that. I would I'd try to plant some type of just an annual cover just if I was worried about holding the soil in place until I had maybe a better weather forecast or a wetter wetter spring and summer coming uh, because as you said Dale it's 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 not cheap to to plant native grasses you can you know blends can depending on what's in your blend and, and what your seeding rate is obviously uh, determines what the final cost per acre is going to be but I would I would tend to play play the odds if I, if I could, uh, you know, some instances where you've got some of our customers might be reseeding a, a pipeline right away or, or uh, oil and gas pipeline, something like that. And they've got a seed. Um, but I would, I would definitely try to set myself up to be successful if I'm going to put out that capital outlay to get, to, to give me the best option to be successful and get a stand established. Absolutely. And I guess a big question related to that is is this my money we're dealing with or is this some pipelines money that again <laughs> they're dealing with so uh, again if it's coming out of your pocket uh, you probably want to try to maximize your opportunity for success what about seabed preparation brian again we're talking about a plowed field now so what are we talking about as far as seabed preparation right you'd want to prepare a good firm seed bed and and then then of course you'd want to plant it uh, you you've got several options of planting methods preferred method is with a drill uh, a native grass drill and that a native grass drill particularly dale as you mentioned earlier those are like little blue stem that have an indian grass that have awns and fuzzy seeds uh you need a you need a native box native grass box that has agitators in the box and picker wheels otherwise that that grass seed sends, tends to bridge up and won't flow through your drill so if you were going with a blend that had some of the hairier, not slick seed, but the hairy native grass seed, you definitely want to make sure you have the right equipment. Um, and you'd want to have depth bands on your on your cutters that are, that are cutting open the soil the, where you're going to drop the seed. You, typically, we want to stay around a quarter of an inch uh, planting these native species. I don't want to get them too deep. It's okay to see a few seeds laying on the ground once you've driven over it with your drill. 
Um, I think some of the, the biggest failures I've seen is people planting it too deep. And there's just not enough energy in that small seed to bust through a half an inch, three quarter inches of soil like you can might get away with planting corn or something bigger seed. Um, so definitely a good firm seed bed and then a, a native grass drill would be the preferred method. Um, you could also you can broadcast it. And I've seen successful seedings that have been done with by broadcasting the seed. Uh, again, if you were going to broadcast it, uh, that native grass can be hard to get through a broadcaster. Again, it's particularly if you've got the hairy seeds, it's not going to flow very well out of a um, fertilizer type spreader, uh, broadcast spreader. Uh, but if you're able to get it to, to go, uh, you definitely want to either pack it or drag it afterwards to get some good seed soil contact for so that that seed will germinate. And then in some instances, in a, in a more expensive way, but sometimes the best way, on, particularly on slopes or something like that, would be uh, folks will use hydro mulch and actually mulch it in and, and hold it hold it in place there, We're on the, particularly on steep slopes. Okay. Um, but I think what I'm hearing you say is I, I can't just take my wheat drill out there and have success for the most part. And I need to have a grass drill. Yes, sir. You need a grass drill or something with an agitator and picker wheel for the native grasses. Now, some of those slick seed, I think, you know, if you were planting switchgrass, something like that, just to, just to, just it and say Illinois bundle flower and some of those hard slick seed forbs, you could, you could probably get away with it if you, but I would definitely, I wouldn't fill up my bin and take off. I would, you know, make sure I'm not dropping all the seed out at one time. I'd make, take, take the time and calibrate your spreader. Uh, in your drill and make sure you're getting the, the required amount out per acre. Well, there's no saying that the best fertilizer is the footprint of the farmer. So yeah, I, I still see my dad walk behind that grain drill with his pocket knife and <laughs> digging down there to make sure that wheat was about where it ought to be when we planted kind of thing. I'm yes, assuming, I, I'm pretty sure, uh, Brian, uh, inform me here, but most of the soil and water conservation districts don't they have uh, grass bills that can be rented or, or loaned out kind of thing? Some do. Um, some don't. Um, quite a few do in Oklahoma. There's a few in Texas. And and I know that, and I know this may be a question later, Dale, but I know uh, Texas Parks and Wildlife with their Pastures for Upland Birds program, I think they have nine drills across the state, kind of strategically located and where folks in the general area could get that scheduled and use it. Um, but some of the soil and water conservation districts do. I'm not sure that all of them have one, but but some of them definitely do. It's worth the call to see uh, because they're they're not cheap. Um, but if you can if you can find one that somebody will let you rent, or or if there's one available through one of the state agencies, something like that that you could use, I would definitely definitely encourage you to do that. And then of course your section section sec, second option is to um, broadcast. Okay. And again, uh, we're trying to pinch pennies here where we can, because it can be an expensive proposition. So you want to go with the, with the method that's going to give you the best results. And that'll probably always be a grass drill over a broadcast method. And you're going to have to increase your seeding rate. Exactly. If you go broadcast, what are some of the seeding rates we're talking about here, Brian? Well, Dale, I kind of break it down into you, you some of the I, I would call say a conservation seeding rate that might be some that we get in with with nrcs blends maybe in that four and a half to five and a half pls pounds per acre generally and um then if it was for a guy that was wanting to get a you know get a really good stand established in the first growing season really get it productive 
might see that seeding rate up around eight to nine PLS pounds per acre, assuming it's going to be drilled. And as you said, we usually recommend if you're going to broadcast it, you ought to double that seeding rate. Okay. Now you're using a, an acronym there that we need to talk about. PLS. Yes. What, what, what does PLS mean? PLS is, is pure live seed in the, in the way that's calculated Dale is, is, is it's your, the, the purity of that seed lot times the, the total germination, which is the, the germ percentage and the dormant or the hard seed percentage multiplied that times the purity. And that gives you your pure live seed percentage. And the easiest way that I can explain that is if you called up and said, I'd like to get a, a hundred pounds of little blue stem seed. And that I, I might ask you, I would ask you this, Dale, I'd say, do you want that bulk or do you want PLS? And the, in a, in, and you might say, what's the PLS percentage of that particular lot? And I say, it's that particular lot of little blue stem has a 90% PLS. What that tells you out of that 100 pounds, if you said, I'll just give me 100 pounds bulk, you're going to get 100 pounds of bulk weight, 250 pound bags, but only 90 pounds of that 100 would be viable seed. The rest would be inert matter, other seed, uh, stems, leaf, something like that, inert matter. So it gives you an indication of what you, how many pounds of viable seed you're purchasing. 90%, you might say that's fine, 90 pounds out of the 100, I'm, I'm good with that. But if you if that lot was 40% PLS, then you're only getting 40 pounds viable seed out of the 100 bulk. So we really encourage folks to buy on the PLS percentage. Uh, then you know you're getting what you what you pay for, and in 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 that scenario I just talked about, if it was a 90% PLS lot of little blue stem versus 40%, it doesn't mean that either one of them are better than the other one. You're just going to have a lot more bulk if as long as you're buying that 40% on a PLS basis compared to the 90% on a PLS basis. If that makes sense. Yes, it does, and I think the take-home message there is buy from a reputable dealer and know what you're getting, kind of thing. Probably yes. if somebody shows up in the in the parking lot of the sale barn one Saturday and he's got a bunch of grass seed at a special rate, well, you might raise an eyebrow on something like that. Yes. What about weed control options when we're establishing grass, Brent? You made me think of one thing that goes along with that, Dale, and we get asked this a lot is should I, should I fertilize when I seed? And I, we tend to say don't recommend to fertilize when you're seeding your native grasses because you're going to give those weeds, those annual weeds are going to take advantage of that and then be competition for your establishment of your native grasses and forbs that you've planted. So there's, there's options, um, chemical options, something with a broadleaf weed killer. We normally recommend don't, don't use that until you've got your native grasses or the grasses that you've planted until the five or six leaf stage, just so you give them a chance to get established and not really dink them and knock them back. Uh, other options is you can you could shred, come across and shred the weeds if weeds are a problem or becoming a problem. Those are the two options that we most most often recommend to help control weeds during establishment of your native grasses and forbs that you've planted. So you're, I think what I'm hearing is, again, when that grass hits the six leaf stage, you could hit it with something like a 2,4-D amine, but uh, probably uh, not not anything that's a more potent weed killer, maybe. Correct. Yeah. And, now, and, if, and if, if the area you were planting had a lot of weeds before you were going to plant, you could go in with some glyphosate and knock it, knock that stuff back. And, and glyphosate doesn't remain active in the soil. So then you can plant your 
seed in there after you've sprayed uh, glyphosate to take out the weed competition before you plant. Okay. One thing, uh, Brian, again, this is 40 years ago, but uh, they, they were talking sometimes if you were going to plant uh, grasses uh, next May that you might want to plant some kind of cover crop out there and then plant into a standing cover crop. And that could have been anything like red top cane. It could be sorghum almum, something like that. Do y'all recommend that these days? You know, if, 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 if the if the producer has time, I definitely do. Uh, I think back, Dale, to, you know, Dr. Bill Eichenhorst over there at Brenham. Yes, sir. Dr. When I, was, I was working with Dr. Bill when I was with Wildlife Extension, and we were actually trying to kill some Bermuda grass at his place and around his house and plant it back to native. And across the county road from him was a, and I think you've seen, Dale, there's some 10, 15, 20 acre tracks of this, of native prairie that has never been plowed. And Dr. Bill's smart guy, we walked, he goes, let's go over here and look at that. And you could walk over there and this is a black clay, black land. Um, you could take your pocket knife and stick it in the soil and just flip that soil up over there in the native prairie. Come back across the street where his Bermuda grass was and we're trying to plant native, you'd stick your knife. If you could get your knife in the ground, you could break your blade off. And, and he and I got to thinking and talking and, and he had the time to do that. So what he did, he said, we need to build our soil up. And I think a lot of times people don't think about this, and I, I don't mean to jump around, Dale, but if you are going back, it's, it's been a cotton field for 50 years. Now you want to go back to native grass and you're trying to plant big blue stem and little blue stem, those late successional plant species into what really is an early successional soil. It's going to be hard to, to get those established really well. So what, what Dr. Eichenhorst did, Dr. Bill did, he, he put it, he'd plant some annual rye and some clover and he'd run cows on it during the fall just trying to build back up the organic matter and and get the nutrient cycling going again so that those native plants that he was going to plant once we sprayed off all of that in the spring uh, could get established better if that makes sense because I, th I think i see that a lot of times in in rob cook who i work with here at bamert we've got to where we'll put a lot of those like some maybe put a little sand drop seed maybe put a little white tridents some of these earlier successional species in a blend just to help trying to get the soil back where it can support a late successional plant community if that makes sense yeah basically what we hope to do is jump start but some of those natural processes that really took 30 years or so to go through you know we, we got to be careful about jump starting or trying yes. to jump start too far i want to switch gears with you brian and and i know you spent much of your career uh, again, converting Bermuda grass back to native grasses. So uh, now let's say instead of uh, like right there at the research ranch, we had 40 acres of coastal Bermuda grass, which had no use in our goals. Uh, so tell me how, if that was our situ situation, our scenario, and I say I'm interested in Bob White quail, but I got Bermuda grass. What might you tell me would be a plan of action? Um, the plan that I would recommend, Dale, would be to to come in in the in the early spring, and if you it, assuming it you had a good stand of Bermuda grass, come in and and use prescribed fire and burn that off in March to to kind of just clear clean it up, if you will, and then that way you get and as you get your spring rains, uh, once that Bermuda grass is really growing well, is then to come in and chemically treat it with glyphosate. And so that way, you, I like the fire because it cleans all the other stuff off. Then you've just got growth of that Bermuda grass. You can really get uh, the leaf coated with the herbicide. 
and hopefully i don't think i think i think bermuda grass is like mesquite we can't say we're going to eradicate it but we can control it enough to where we can have a chance to get some natives in there that can hopefully outcompete it over time um and then and, and depending on soil type in, in my experience you might have to treat that again i i tended if it was a clay soil it seemed like it, you just didn't get as good of control on your Bermuda grass with one application of herbicide. I know I talking to the parks and wildlife guys that are doing this under their pastures for upland bird program, they're normally spraying twice um, before they plant their native grasses to try to really get the control on that Bermuda grass. And can we talk about a rate of glyphosate? Are we talking about two quarts per acre, four quarts per acre? What are we talking about there? Yes, and, and I actually talked to Tim Sigmund at Parks and Wildlife about this yesterday, and he said if it's the forty-one percent glyphosate, four quarts on two, four quarts, and then another application of four quarts. If you've got a higher percentage, forty-eight to fifty-four percent, three quarts, and then the second treatment, three quarts. Okay, and that's. Uh... Now, now I hear about some other herbicides, and I'm not familiar with them, uh, personally familiar with them, but I, as I go to some of those national quail meetings, they're talking about some of the oh, the newer herbicides. Uh, Plateau, is that one of them? I don't know. I, I may have the trade names wrong. No, I've heard of that one too, Dale, and, I'm, I, and I may be wrong on this too because I'm not up on that my herbicides like I, like I probably should be. Uh, I know Plateau, I believe they're – over say down by college station where you have bahia grass another introduced kind of tends to be a monoculture um, that may be one herbicide they're trying to use on it to control it to get native grasses reestablished. but for where we're at if we're focusing on rolling plains uh, glyphosate is our chemical of choice yes sir and it's um, readily available and um, not terribly expensive anymore that's been my experience right uh, what about any kind of, okay, we talked about nurse crops a while ago, um, and we, uh, let's, let's forget the nurse crop relative to the Bermuda grass, but you brought up a point, one that I hadn't thought of about burning off that residue. Another thing that fire does, of course, is stimulate that grass growth. And a misconception I think a lot of people have is they'd like to think they could spray that Bermuda grass or anything if you're trying to use an herbicide. You you don't want a stressed plant. You want a plant that's actively growing. And so that fire is basically really turned that Bermuda grass on. And then when you hit it with that glyphosate, it, uh, like I said, it, it helps to give you an increased kill. Yes, that. sir. Well, let's talk about some of the, well, first of all, before we leave the Bermuda grass conversion again, Brian, what, what would you say were some of the most common mistakes or failures that you saw during your career as far as trying to take that Bermuda grass and go back to natives? Well, as, as as I said earlier, I don't think we're ever going to completely control it, but but we did have success in getting it knocked back long enough to where we could get natives established, and then hopefully over time, you know, kind of shade that Bermuda grass out. And 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 to me, that's that was success. Um, learn things. Um, started out with lower rates, and, and they, boy, that that Bermuda grass can just come right back. Uh, one thing I saw in one place if it, who had cattle in there pri previously, we had a good kill, but everywhere there was a cow pie, you had runners of Bermuda grass coming out. So you're kind of having to go back and hand spot spray it to try to control it. So just some little things like that, Dale, just just trial and error. And if, if anybody was wanting to try and do it on their own, you know, there are some cost share programs out there for it. And we'll talk about those in a little bit. 
but it, start small and just experiment and see what works for your area and your soils. Uh, you don't have to do the whole hundred acres at once. If you wanted to try on 15 or five or an acre and just try trial and error, you might, and as we've talked about, you might want to try some cover crops in it, build up the soil a little bit better before you plant your natives. It, it all kind of comes down to the producer on, on what they're willing to spend and, and the time that they have to, to work with it. Well, that Bermuda grass field there at the research range, again, we basically said, uh, we're going to use this for a dove field. And so we plant winter wheat, uh, we'll disc yep. it. And generally with the winter wheat, we get sunflowers. We also started using some hairy vetch in it several years. And I love hairy vetch. Yes. It's a good jump starter for insects. And, and when we had quail in 15, 16, we'd find quail 200 yards out in the middle of that field kind of thing. And I think it was largely a result of that hairy vetch. So several opportunities for you to uh, experiment there and try your hand at that. Let's move into the cost, Brian, because again, we've, we've hinted around this, that it's an expensive proposition. So given a typical seeding rate, again, let's say Fisher County where the research ranch is, and uh, we've got a, we've got that dove field. Now we say, well, we want to turn it into native warm season grasses. What would be a blend you'd recommend? What do you think it's going to cost me in terms of per acre? We'll talk more about cost share programs here in just a second. But what do you think the 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 total cost would be to get that grass established? I'm ready. I'm sitting down. So I'll show some stickers on here. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna give you that. It depends. Uh, ecological answer to that. You know, it depends, Dale. It depends on what varieties we're gonna have in your blend. Uh, and what the seeding rate would be, but I I would say you could be, you could be anywhere in the in the mid 60s per acre up to 130, 140 dollars an acre, and then say your goal was uh was pollinators, and you get there's been a really big push with the monarch over the last four or five years with the pollinator plantings, you get some of those forbs in there, you might be you might get up in a seeding rate that could be several hundred dollars per acre just depending on what forbs you had in there. And that's just due to the availability of those and being commercially available. But I would say on general, we're usually in that uh, with a really good blend and a, in a, in a good seeding rate, you're probably in that 75 to 100, 100, 105 range per acre. That wasn't as bad as I was expecting. So, <laughs> and again, I appreciate that it that can, uh, Obviously, it does depend, especially if we begin to put some of those high-priced uh, Forbes yes. seeds in there kind of thing. Um, let's talk about cost-share efforts. You mentioned the uh, Parks and Wildlife and their Pastures for Wildlife kind of thing. What are some what are some opportunities that may be available to a local producer? Well, and th these are the ones I know about, so I apologize if I've left anybody out. But, of course, you've got your USDA Natural Resource Conservation Service. They have some cost-share programs that help reestablish uh, native grasses. The U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, uh, their partners program, I believe they have some funds available at times to help uh, with grassland restoration. Uh, we mentioned the Texas Parks and Wildlife Pastures for Upland Bird Program. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, all of the joint ventures, Dale, in the state, they have a GRIP program. That's their Grassland Restoration Incentive Program where they'll help cost share uh, grassland restoration with producers. And then I know of, of um, uh, the Wildlife Habitat Federation down down by Belleville, they do a good job down in that part of the state working with producers to reestablish native grasslands. Those are the ones I'm aware of. Do you know of any others? 
No, but uh, again, you, you're working over in that part of the eastern rolling plains where those are more popular and so forth. And I, and I know Tim Sigmund and several yes. others of the Parks and Wildlife folks uh, have been through our Quail Masters program. So we're always glad to see that. And and uh, so there is expertise out there. So ask your local Parks and Wildlife, NRCS people, uh, or what cost share efforts may be out there. Maybe some equip dollars or something like that. Yeah. And, and one other one, Dale, I just thought of, I think the... Dr. Hart, Lewis Harvison over there with the Borderlands Research Institute. I think they've got some for far west Texas out there for, for some grassland restoration as well. Okay. And they have some funds available. Right. Brian, let's let's talk about something we I guess we should have covered in the agronomic factors, but I had it listed a little longer and lower in the program here. <laughs> but it's a situation where somebody they tell you, well, we went out and planted that expensive native grass seed last year and it didn't do anything. How long should people give a planting before they throw up their hands and say it didn't work? In my experience, Dale, I, I've I've seen I've seen it established really well in the first year, and I've seen some places it takes two, three years even. And and that all comes back to rainfall and when you get it. You know, if 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 I if I worked with you and you bought that seed for the for that coastal field there at the Rolling Plains Quail Research Ranch and it rain you planted it and we got a inch rain every two weeks, I think you'd probably see great success in the first year. If it doesn't get that, um it, it, you easily two to three years. And there's an old saying and I, I heard it from a county agent a long time ago, and that was he always said when you plant in native grass, it it sleeps, it creeps, and it leaps. So basically, you know, it, it kind of takes it a while, it'll sit there until conditions are right it germinate and then year two it may do some more and then it really expresses itself in year three and i think a lot of that just comes down to probably just the the rainfall and when it's when you receive that rainfall after you've planted it's great advice brian uh, we did learn something from those county agents that we worked with over all those years. absolutely yes you sir and I, you and i had some great ones to work with uh anyway i have fond memories of working with many of them Brian, one last question, and that's for somebody. And again, most of our native rangelands here in West Texas really looked hard this year. Uh, uh, whether or not it, it wasn't always overstocking, uh, the desert termites raped a lot of our country. We talk, we're going to talk about desert termites in another podcast, but it was the country looked really hard. And so a lot of people might say, well, I want to go in and reseed my native rangeland. In other words, now we're talking about just rangeland that doesn't look good and they want to go in there with the grass deal and, and reseed there do you recommend that or what is your recommendation given those kind of a scenarios i would i would tend not to dale i think a lot of those instances it's just it's just the result of the drought uh those 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 plants are still there they're just you're not seeing them um you, you now depending on the severity of the drought you may have lost some some of your native grasses and in that instance again that comes back to the producer i think is how what's their timeline and what's their management objectives but i generally would not recommend it until i've seen it you know give it a, give it some time to rest and see what see what comes back that's good advice and and i agree totally with you you know pull the stock off of it for two years and let's see what it looks like after that if you can do that and chances are you've got a lot more of those uh, native grasses that you wanted to see they were just being suppressed for whatever reason Correct. Brian, appreciate your uh, expertise today, and it's great to visit with you again. Uh, 
is there anything else that uh, you can think of that we might have missed that's important about this topic? No, sir. I, I think we've did a good job of covering just about everything. And I, I do appreciate the opportunity to be here and visit with you, Dale. I've really enjoyed it. Well, I'm going to close with a quote by Dwight D. Eisenhower, who said, farming looks mighty easy when your plow is a pencil and you're a thousand miles from the cornfield. So again, the best fertilizer footprint of the farmer, spend time out there looking at your land, learning about your land, being able to read your land, and then knowing where to find the expertise. And uh, lack of expertise should not be an issue for you in today's world because there's plenty of it out there, either in the form of Brian Hayes or his colleagues. Uh, and again, on the internet, there's a lot of good information. Just make sure it's good information. And with that, Gary, we're going to turn it back to y'all in the studio there, and we'll look forward to seeing you again next month. Thank you so much, Dr. Dale. Some great information and insights from you and Brian. You're right. Lack of expertise is not an issue when such wonderful resources are available. We hope you've enjoyed this month's podcast and conversation. For more information about the Dr. Dale on Quail podcast and past episodes, go to the website of the Rolling Plains Quail Research Foundation at quailresearch.org. I'm Gary Joyner with the Texas Farm Bureau. Thank you for joining us today. Until next time. Support from Gordian Sons Outfitters makes Dr. Dale on Quail possible. Gordian Sons, the finest hunting and fly fishing shop to be found. Find out more at GordianSons.com.